Christ is risen. It's good to be back at Sanctuary. I'm especially honored to have my father-in-law and mother-in-law with me today, Chuck and Irene. Let's give them a hand if you would. I'm sure they would be happy for me to live a little east of Tulsa. That would mean they'd get to see the grandbabies a little more than they do. Thank you for being here today. I'm, I'm guessing that many of you, like, like me, came today weighted with the awareness of the horror that's happening here at home and around the world, with the weight of what you've seen and heard happening in Gaza and Israel, in Iraq, in Syria, in Ferguson. And everything I'm going to say today has been shaped in me by the reflection on this text, the story of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, as all of that is swirling through me. It did hit me yesterday sometime as I was finishing up what I wanted to say today, finishing my remarks, that the truth is this kind of horror is always happening in our world. And there are just times in which our news cycle lets some of that through to us. And I think we need to be vigilant that even when we're not seeing it on Facebook and Twitter and whatever news outlet you allow to bring the news to you, to remember that this kind of horror is always happening in the world and we always have to be interceding, whether it's in our face or not. So God forgive us for not always having eyes to see and ears to hear. But in times like these, when we all have been made aware of the way that our world is broken and continues to break, I think it's important that we let the Scripture speak directly to that. Let God use Scripture to speak directly to that. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. As a prelude to that, I want to ask you to reflect with me on a couple of images, on an image from a monastery, Daphne Monastery, just outside of Athens. This was a monastery that was, well, at least the mosaic was, was painted in the 11th century. And in the dome, the central dome of that monastery, is an icon of Christ the All-Ruling One, a Pantocrator icon. I want you to look at this and tell me what your response is. So there you see a picture of the dome. And if we come to a close shot of the icon itself, tell me what you see. What's your response to this? That's actually a, a fitting response. A terrific response. Out of the mouth of babes, right? What do you see? What, do you, what, what happens? What do you feel when you see this icon? It's distressing in some ways, yes? It's disturbing. If you, if you know anything about this family of icons, if you've seen other Pantocrator icons, you know that typically in an icon of this kind, Jesus is looking directly at us as we look at the icon. He's making eye contact with us. And his expression is one of serenity or even flat effect, as if he's emotionless. Almost always in these icons... His right hand is held in the sign of blessing, as if he, as the all-ruling one, is speaking over us grace and peace. And almost always in these icons, he's holding the scriptures loosely. Sometimes the scriptures are open, sometimes they're closed, but almost always, in fact, in every other Pentecostal icon I've ever seen, he's holding it at, re it's at rest in his arm. But here you can see his hand is distorted, as if he's gripping the book fiercely. And he has no sign of blessing. He's making no sign of blessing with his right hand. It's, it's as if he's forgotten to make the sign. And he's not looking at us. He's looking past us. And whatever it is that's written on his face, whether this is anger or misery or anguish, it's certainly not serenity. 
Now, I think it's crucial that we, from time to time, are confronted with images of Christ that disturb the way we had pictured him. I think many of us have a too settled image of God, a too settled, too neatly put together picture of what Jesus is like. And I think there are many texts of scripture, including the one I'm going to read to you now, that work on us like this icon is meant to work on us. Jesus is more and other than you've known. God is more and other than we've known. So with all that in our hearts and minds, let's look at this text from Matthew 15, the story of Jesus' confrontation with a Canaanite woman. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre, of Sidon, Tyre and Sidon, which is a border, border towns, just the border of Israel and the Gentile lands. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting. I want you to picture this. Let, let the image work on you. Jesus is, is passing to the very edges of, of his country. And there's a crowd gathered. He's teaching. His disciples are with him. And this woman interrupts that moment, screaming, Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. C.S. Lewis famously said that he loved the Jesus of the Gospels until he read the Gospels. Because Jesus, as the Gospels tell it, is other and more than we've expected. He ignores her. And she persists, so much so that his disciples finally come to him and say, send her away. She keeps shouting after us. And so once Jesus ignores her, she turns her attention on the disciples and badgers them, hounds them, until they become disgusted with it and go to Jesus and say, send this woman away. You notice how often in the Gospels the disciples are trying to send people away? They want to send the children away. The crowds that follow that are hungry, they want to send them away. Christians haven't really changed from that. I think many of us still feel that way, right? We still want to send them away. And so they say, she's badgering us, send her on. And he says to them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm not going to send her away. She's not my business. I came to speak to the house of Israel. She's a Canaanite. We're in a border town. She came and knelt before him. So she fights her way through the crowd, past the disciples, gets in Jesus' way, falls on her knees at his feet and says, Lord, help me. Hear her voice cracking. See the tears on her face. And then he finally speaks to her. And, and as I picture it, he's not so much looking at her as looking over her, looking past her. And he says, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. So she's finally fought her way to Jesus. And he dismisses her with a racial slur. As you've heard, dog was a slur for Gentiles. And she comes back. Yes, Lord, yet even the puppies eat the crumbs that fall from your master's table. And then he sees her. He says, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, one of the strangest strangenesses of the Christian life is that we cannot even come to Scripture at all without having already some sense of who God is. 
Jesus tells some of his accusers, they can't see the scriptures rightly. They can't read Moses and the prophets rightly because they don't have his word dwelling in their hearts. So there's some sense in which we can't even open scripture and read it as God's word to us until we have some sense of who God is and what God is like. And yet the odd truth is, whenever we come to scripture rightly, scripture, God through scripture, begins immediately to change what we think we know about the God who brought us to the scripture. So we only come if we have some faith in God's character. But when we come to scripture rightly, immediately God's character begins to be altered. The way we imagine God's character begins to be altered. Because there's a difference between the way I picture God and the way God is. There's how I see him, and then there's how God is. So I know that God is faithful. And when we make that confession that God is faithful, we're saying something's true. We just don't know how it's true. Yes, God is faithful, but his faithfulness means more and other than what I've known it to mean. And in any given moment, I might misjudge faithfulness because I'm working with my understanding of faithfulness, even though God is faithful. So in some traditions, and here from time to time, we will say, God is good, and the people respond with, all the time. And that's true. So long as we understand that God's goodness is not always trackable. We're not always able to say, this is the goodness of God. Because much of what is God's goodness passes us by without us seeing it. And sometimes we call good those things that are not good. Because God is more and other than I've known him to be. Scripture says God dwells in an unapproachable light. That his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Paul tells the Corinthians, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it's never even entered into the heart of a human being what God is preparing for them. He tells the Ephesians, he wants them to know the love that passes knowing. He wants them to come to understand this love that holds them in being, even though it's exceeding abundantly beyond all they could ask or dare to imagine. So Christian faith accepts the truth that whatever we say about God is true in the moment up to a point, but it's never the whole truth about the God who's claiming us. And so we have to hold our pictures of God lightly. We have to say, this is what I see about God, but it's what I see about God. And I may not be seeing what needs to be seen. And I'm certainly not seeing everything that needs to be seen. And that's true about God and that's true about Scripture. I think many of us are like, imagine you're at the control boards and you're controlling the sound for an orchestra. I think many of us have essentially pushed all of the slides down so that there's just one instrument being heard. The whole orchestra's playing. But all we're hearing is the tuba, one tuba, every once in a while, hitting a certain note. And we're calling that the gospel. Does it belong to the sound? Absolutely. Is it true? Absolutely. But it's not the whole truth. And when we come to Scripture, if we've got all of the slides down and all we're hearing is one note over and over again, that's not the beauty of God. And if people reject it, they're not rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting our representation of the gospel. I wonder how many people have turned aside from Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because of the way we've misrepresented Jesus, underrepresented Jesus, made him seem like something he isn't. So this, I think, is crucial. We have to understand there's our picture of God, and we have to live with that. And yet, God is more than what I've pictured him to be. We, in our culture, we have been 
broadly but very weakly Christianized. To be in the West is to have a Christianity that's really, really anemic but pervasive. So what results from that is the assumption that we know more about God than we in fact do. So you'll often hear people, I mean, you can't have been around colleges. Of course, I've spent a lot of time teaching undergraduate and graduate students. People throw around the name of God all the time as if we all knew what we meant when we say God. Do you believe in God? Yes, I do, or no, I don't. But the crucial question is not do you believe in God or not. It's which God do you believe in or not believe in? Who, are you, who do you mean when you say God? For most people, and I challenge you this week, listen carefully, most people in our culture... When they say God, what they really mean is whatever power it is that makes happen what I can't explain. So you'll hear things like this. I don't know how to explain it. Must have been God. And the assumption there is if I can't explain it, God is not at work there. Wherever God is at work, it's beyond my explanation. Whatever I can't explain, God is not at work there. But that makes God, an object in our world, an agent among other agents, as if God's work in our world is in competition with all of these other powers that at work in our world. But the truth is, God is no less involved in what you think you understand than he is in what you think you don't understand. You may have an explanation, but that doesn't mean God wasn't involved in it. I heard Marilyn Robinson say once that many people in our culture confuse description for explanation. They describe what's happened in certain terms, and they think that explains what happened. But when God is involved, there is no explanation that gets to the bottom of it. Because what it's it's at the bottom of everything is a God who is infinite and infinitely loving and infinitely holy. And so there is no final explanation of anything that happens in our lives. There is a kind of description we can do, but we have to, at the end of that description, say, but God, so who knows what's happening? And this is why we have to be incredibly careful in our testimonies and in our laments. When we testify and say, God has done X, we need to be very careful. Because we never want to indicate that we understand all that God has done in whatever this event was. And we never want to imply that that means God wasn't involved in another event like it. The church I grew up in, there were a couple of ladies who had sons who were roughly the same age. They went to school together from kindergarten right on up. In high school, they were out one night, on a Friday night, had a car wreck. One of them died in the car wreck, and the other lived. And a few weeks after that, there was a a service, a testimony service, in which the mother of the boy who lived stood to say, thank God that he spared my son. Thank God that he spared my son. Now, she's just testifying to what she's experienced as goodness. But there's an implication for the other mother who's there in the room with her. And for all those other mothers around the world who lost their children. Every time we testify about God, we're making implications for everyone who's hearing. And every time we complain or lament, why isn't God doing X? We have all kinds of implied references in what we're saying. So we always have to make our testimony and our lament with this asterisk. But God is at work. And that means my picture of God is incomplete. And even if it's true in so far as it goes, it's not the whole picture. That's the stance we have to take always with everything we say about God. The trouble is when we settle on a picture of God, it's inevitably a distorted picture of God. 
And when you give your allegiance to a distorted picture of God, Scripture says that's idolatry. And idolatry leads to people who have and embody a distorted image of God. If I settle on a picture of God, and I never allow God to disrupt that picture for my sake, then I start to misrepresent God to everyone who sees me. I start to be a distorted image bearer. So what we have to do is pray like Meister Eckhart prayed, God, save me from God. God, save me from the way I picture you to be. Don't let me confuse what I'm saying about you with who you are. I'm going to keep saying what I have to say. I'm going to keep saying, here's the picture I have of God. Here's what I know God to be. But I'm always going to say that knowing it's what I see and knowing that you are exceeding abundantly beyond all I can ask or think or dare to imagine. But we are, many of us at least, are afraid to let go of that picture of God. We're afraid to let God destroy it. I'm not sure exactly why. I don't know that you can explain human motivation. But I suspect that at least part of the reason for some of us is that we're afraid God isn't as good as we've pictured him to be. That we have a picture of God that's more merciful and just than God in fact turns out to be. But if the gospel is true at all, that cannot be so. If the gospel is true at all, then God is infinitely more merciful than I can ever imagine him to be. You remember what Jesus says? If you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more does your heavenly father desire to give good things to you? Whatever we see in the end when we come face to, God, face, to face with God and see him as he is, we are not going to find out that he's not as good as we imagined. He's going to be infinitely better than we could have imagined. And that's precisely why we don't need to be afraid of having our images of God disturbed and even destroyed. And so all of that said, let's come back to this text. Why this story? I think we will be tempted to try to figure out what is Jesus thinking. Some of us may even be tempted to be indignant with Jesus as if we're somehow morally superior to Jesus. Right? Well, I wouldn't ignore that woman if she came to me looking for help. And in that case, we become a little, a little bit like Peter, who in the very next chapter takes Jesus aside and says, you're not going to be crucified. M Messiahs aren't crucified. And Jesus says, get behind me, devil. Get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of human beings and not the things of God. But I think if we read this story, it's a mistake to try to guess. What is Jesus thinking? What is he doing? The question is, what's he doing to us? Why is he acting? What does he want us to learn when he acts this way? And so one of the ways that I think we come to grips with stories like this is we kind of take a step back and we ask, what's, what's the bigger picture in the gospel? In this case, the gospel of Matthew. And in some ways, there are notes that run through this gospel that make it seem as if Jesus is very much concerned only about Israel. So in the genealogy, the gospel's opening line is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. So the announcement makes it sound as if Jesus is very much Israel's Messiah. His business has to do with Israel and no one else. He says in his famous Sermon on the Mount, I have come to fulfill the law. Not one jot, not one tittle is going to pass from the law. I'm going to fulfill it completely. He says when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, 
Don't babble like the Gentiles do. He sounds like a racist. Don't babble like the Gentiles do. And then he tells them, don't give what is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls before swine. Both of those are racial slurs. Jesus sounds like a very parochial savior. He's there for his people. And you do know, of course, at the root of all of the horror that we're witnessing in our country and around the world is the idea that God is mine. Whether you're in Gaza or in Jerusalem, whether you're in Mosul or you're on Mount Sinjar or you're in Ferguson, on either side of that police line, what you're thinking is God is mine. And there's so many times that Jesus sounds like he's saying God is ours. He belongs with us, not with them. When he commissions his disciples in chapter 10, he says, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Do not go to the Gentiles and do not speak to the Samaritans, but go only to the house of Israel. And then when this woman makes her way to him, what does he say? I've come only for the house of Israel. I don't give food to dogs. But that's only if you're listening to some of the notes in the performance. Because if you let all the slides come back up and you start to hear the whole orchestra, Matthew's gospel sounds very, very different. Let's go back to the genealogy. Yes, it's the genealogy of Jesus, Israel's Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. But in that genealogy, there are five women you shouldn't include in the genealogy. There's the story of Tamar, who dresses like a prostitute to get her father-in-law to sleep with her so that she can become pregnant and continue in the family line. She belongs to God's family. There's a story of Rahab, the prostitute, who hides the spies and lies about them so that she can be saved from the coming judgment. She's in God's family. She's Jesus' mother. There's a story of Ruth, another Gentile, who sleeps her way into the covenant. Finds a way to convince Boaz to take her as a wife. She's in Jesus' family. Bathsheba, who just does a little moonlight bathing in front of the king's house. And then Mary, this girl who says, oh, no, no, Joseph and I have not crossed any boundaries. This is God's work. And so right away, we're being signaled. God is at work at the edges of your story with people who remain in the shadows for you. You think this is a story about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You think this is a story about prophets, priests, and kings. But this is really a story about lying prostitutes and desperate women. See? This orchestra sounds very different from what you've been used to hearing. In Matthew's gospel, the first people to worship Jesus are the Magi. Now, when we stage our Christmas plays and our children come up to do their, take their roles, we always create a kind of fifth gospel. So we have the shepherds worshiping first. But in Matthew's gospel, there's no mention of the shepherds. The first people to worship Jesus in Matthew's gospel are stargazing astrologers from the Far East who come to worship Jesus. So it's not the priests, it's not prophets, 
It's not his disciples. The first people to recognize Jesus in Matthew's gospel are people who are reading their horoscope. What is God doing? Jesus' life begins. He's born, you remember? And Herod begins the persecution, and Jesus flees to Egypt. Jesus' life begins as a refugee. He begins life as a refugee in the country that his people had once been delivered from. Notice the irony. God has to save Israel from Egypt because of Egypt's oppression. And then the only way for God to be saved when God comes among us is to return to that very land because his own people are oppressing him. John the Baptist, when he baptizes Jesus, says to his opponents, you boast that you're children of Abraham, you're sons and daughters of Abraham. I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from stones. Don't boast in your identity as the people of God. God can do this with anyone, anything, in anything, anytime. Jesus, in that same sermon where he says, I've not come to destroy the law, tells them, you've heard it said, but I say, which is his signal. I'm going to fulfill the law, but I'm going to destroy your reading of the law. Not one jot or tittle is going to pass from what God intends, but everything is going to pass from what you thought God intended. You've heard it said, but I say. When Jesus comes to the end of his life and he stands before Pilate, Pilate's wife has the dream about him. She says, do nothing against this righteous man. Pilate's wife is having a dream from God about who Jesus is. And it's Simon of Cyrene, a black man who carries Jesus' cross for him, not his disciples, not his family, not his brothers or sisters. This foreigner is brought in from the sidelines by the Romans to carry Jesus' cross, which is just another signal. You don't know how God is at work in those people who stand on the corners of your life, who stand at the edges of your story. You think you're living in the light, but there's light at work in what appears to be shadows to you. And then perhaps most astonishingly at all, when Jesus dies, the centurion says, surely this was the son of God. The first one to confess Jesus as savior, as the one who gives his life for us, is the soldier who killed him. This is God's son. And in all of these ways, Matthew is signaling to us, don't think you know what's going on in God's story. Your reading of the story is too flat and too narrow and too distorted to see how good God is. And so with all of that reverberating, what do we see and hear differently in this Canaanite woman's story? What struck me this week was that she's a Canaanite. You remember who the Canaanite people are, yes? They're the people that Israel destroyed. So her family's history is the history of being oppressed by Israel. When she and her family have heard about the God of Israel, they didn't hear good news. They heard news of oppression. And yet somehow this Canaanite woman recognizes that Jesus represents God more truly than anything she's ever heard from her family or from the Israelites who oppressed her. She fights through and says, I know you. I know you better than any of these others know you. 
This is the second time in Matthew's gospel we've gotten this exact thing from a Gentile. A centurion comes to Jesus and tells him, I have a servant who's dying. And Jesus says, fine, I'll come. I'll come and heal it. And he says, no, 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 you don't need to come. Just speak the word. You remember what Jesus says? I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. And someday, Jesus says, people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west to sit down at table with Abraham in God's kingdom. And this woman is doing that. Christian readers from the beginning have seen her as a sign of the church, as a figure of the church, because she's a mother who's desperate to bring her children to Jesus and to Jesus' table. She's desperate to get her daughter there. God, have mercy on my daughter who's tormented by a demon. And so what I I was struck by this week is that I think in some ways what it means to be the church is to be identified with the Canaanites, who are the people who we thought were outside the covenant, insisting that we're going to bring our children to Jesus. To be a Canaanite is to say, I'm not going to be pushed off this moment. I'm not going to be cast out of the land again. You're Jesus, and you're not just the God of Israel. You're the Lord of all. And I will take even the crumbs that fall from the table. To be the church is to bring our children to Jesus in all desperation and say, we will beg for them. We will beg for them. And our children, of course, are not only our children. Our children of all those who are lost, all those who are abandoned, all those who are sick, we bring them to Jesus. This week, and I end with this, this week I was watching the news, and it was a segment about Mount Sinjar, about ISIL, and these Christians stranded at the top of the mountain, some of whom were killing their own children so their children wouldn't die slowly from starvation. And the particular part of the segment was about one of the terrorist cells. And my son, my six-year-old, came running into the room. And I paused the television. He needed something. I helped him. I came back. And the TV was paused. And I reached for the remote to hit play. And I heard the Lord say, stop. Look at every face in that picture. They had frozen on a picture of 30 or 40 ISIL terrorists with their machine guns and machetes, many of them with their faces covered, posing. And so I got up and I walked up to my television and I looked at each face and I prayed for them. One of the things that struck me is that I don't think any of them could have been 30 years old. They were boys. And it was as if I remembered what Jesus said when he was being crucified. Do you remember what he said about those who were crucifying? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And here we are two millennia later. People are still persecuting Jesus. They're still crucifying him. And he's still saying they don't know what they're doing. And what I want to do today when I come to this table is I want to drag those boys, whoever they are, in all of their wickedness and say to Jesus, let them have at least the crumbs. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how Jesus is going to get to them, how he's going to lay claim to the darkness that's in them and drive it out. But I have to believe that's what he will do. Those are my children. Those are our children. Not just the ones who are being killed, the ones doing the killing. Those are, those are our children. 
Now, we have to be desperate enough to say, Lord, have mercy. We're begging for them at your table. So today as we come, Pastor Ed is going to come and lead us in this communion rite. As you come to the table, my, my prayer is that you will come not for yourself. Don't come asking the Lord to do something for you. Come bearing someone in your heart or someone's in your heart. And as you take this bread and this wine, I, I, I want to invite you to say to the Lord, help them. We'll take just the crumbs. Help them. Whoever they are, they're his. He's not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of the church. He is Lord of all, and every name belongs to him. And if we are who we are called to be, those are our children. And we've got to get them to Jesus. Pastor Ed, will you come? Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.